All right, it's episode 24. Mm-hmm. Episode 24. Yep. Which I've been dreading the last few days. Mm-hmm. I didn't think this was going to be hard, but we'll have to figure this out. Hope nobody's going to hold this. We, we, have to, we have to make a determination right here and right now. Right. Well, not right now, but right here. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's either the junior episode or it's the Say Hey Kid. We'll get to that here in a minute. Um, reached out to some baseball experts to help me. Texted Jason Stark. He gave mm. me his opinion. Oh. Uh, Steve Phillips, the GM, former GM, is going to be on episode 24 nice. to discuss how we go about naming this this episode. <laughs> okay? Because I, at the end of the day, I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with the responsibility. Yeah. So either you got to do it or you and Steve got to do it or the three of us have to do it. But well, we got to make some determinations. You're here. shirking your responsibility? I'm shirking. Okay. I'm shirking my responsibility. Steve Phillips will be with us to do that. He'll also uh, give us the tail of the tape between Mays and Junior and um, discuss Manny Machado. Mm-hmm. $300 million for Manny Machado, really? The guy who got the biggest contract in the history of professional sports yes. is Manny Machado. Isn't that some, somewhat underwhelming to you? Well, Manny, of all yeah. the people, LeBron James, yeah, of yeah, all the yeah. Michael Jordan, of all the greats of the greats, even Bryce Harper, it's Manny Machado. Not that I have anything against Manny Machado. I guess I kind of do, but I don't. I don't think of him as the highest paid athlete in professional sports. History for a week until Bryce Harper. Yeah, starts. well, we don't know that he set the market. W- well, Steve Phillips, let's listen to Steve okay. Phillips. Okay, Steve Phillips kind of thinks that he's worth more than Bryce Harper. And the problem Ooh. that Bryce Harper has is he's got nobody that wants to pay him. Manny Machado numbers are more than Mach- Manny Machado Ooh. numbers. Okay, um, so Steve Phillips will be our guest on episode number 24. If you had asked me 48 hours ago who Scott Eden is, I would have given you the same answer as you're giving me right now. Mm-hmm. The look that you're giving me right now mm-hmm. would be the look that I would have given you 48 hours ago. Scott Eden is a guy, is a writer who wrote an expose, an investigative journalistic piece that he worked on for two years on Tim Donahue. Oh yes, have you? Uh, you are aware of the. I'm piece. aware of the story. I yes. have not yet read the story. ESPN and this guy Scott Eden worked literally two years to uncover things that we've never known about that whole Tim Don. I, I'm assuming everybody knows who Tim Donahue is, right? Well, or, maybe not NBA. I mean, I don't know how many NBA fans in Seattle really paid much attention. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Disgraced former NBA official who in 2007 got outed for wagering on games, though it was never proven without a shadow of a doubt that he tampered with the games. Right. But he, he did end up going to jail. He did, yes. And, and here we are now 12 years later, and ESPN the magazine, written by Scott Eden, did this incredible, fascinating piece that I read. It took me like three days to read it. It's so long. <laughs> it is so long, but it's so interesting. It is so interesting. I called, I wrote, I begged, and he's come on. He's going to do two segments on this episode number 24. Fantastic. All right, so that's who Scott Eden is. 
Um, plus more listener feedback and requests and storytelling. You're gonna be you're gonna be on the spot today. I might be passing until episode 25 on that, but we'll we'll get really? to that. We'll get to that. We'll get really? to that. Depends on depends on where we go with it. Hmm. I didn't expect that kind of an answer. I don't understand that. Well, I don't depends even, on where we go with it. Yeah, you're you're setting me up for something that I'm not aware of. No, no, you're you're fully aware because I I texted you and I told you that we have to get the story of of a flood in a hotel. Oh, yeah. That's that that that's gonna have to be next episode. Really? Yeah. That's, that's you're not prepared to tell no, that I'm not story. Tell that well, story. What, what's the difference between next episode and this episode? I'll be more prepared to tell the story. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, episode 24 and all of our episodes of Mitch Unfiltered available on Apple iTunes and Spotify and all podcast platforms. Had another meeting the other day about somebody wanting us to appear on Twitch, mm-hmm. wanting this show to be in a studio with cameras and live video access. Yeah. It, it makes my skin crawl, mm-hmm. but I'm considering going down that direction please subscribe and rate us on itunes throw us a bone a five-star special become a patron for as little as five dollars a month and have access to all the bonus content available we also have a new mitch unfiltered facebook page so we want you to like like us on mitch unfiltered facebook and also we want you to click on all the old episodes if you haven't checked out the old episodes, you don't have yeah. to listen to the whole thing. But just by clicking on the old episodes, you help sustain Mitch Unfiltered. Still don't know about the extra seating yet at Daniels for our sold-out March 19th NCAA tournament dinner. Uh, you can send me an email through the website, MitchUnfiltered.com, if you want to get on the list so that if we have more seats, I can divvy them up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give patrons the first shot, the first crack, mm-hmm. if we're able to expand the evening at Daniel's. All of this is brought to you by Daniel's USDA Prime. Great seasonal seafood. My favorite bacon wrap scallops. Four incredible locations. Leshy, Lake Union, Bellevue, and the spanking new downtown Seattle spot in the Hyatt Regency on 8th and Howell. Evergreen Golf Call managing over $2 billion in assets. Four offices on the West Coast. Evergreen is the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Jag Land Rover. Snowy conditions, no problem. Safety is Land Rover's middle name. Check out the Range Rovers and the Range Rover Sports and the Evoke 2 at Land Rover of Bellevue and Zeke's Pizza. Looking for a great pizza, an amazing assortment of craft beer, all while watching sports in a friendly environment. Try one of the 16 locations of Zeke's Pizza. Here comes episode number 24. Unfiltered. It's okay to have a game plan going in, but when you're so stubborn and unwilling to get away from it because the other team is essentially daring you to do so, then we get into stupidity. Unfiltered. Guess that's what really kind of infuriates me, that we go to the offseason after a game that the quarterback was really not given a chance to win the football game for you. That's a quarterback who's the face of the organization. That's a quarterback who, as I say, in a couple of years or in a year, they're going to give, I don't know, $25, $30 million a year to. And yet, it just feels to me like they took the ball out of his hands. Mitch is unfiltered. All right, episode 24, which you and I thought weeks ago would just be Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Jr., and then it was pointed out 
that may be one of the greatest five baseball players of all time, the Say Hey Kid, mm-hmm. where there is no parallel. Mm-hmm. There's no match for the Say Hey Kid. Mm-hmm. Also wore 24. He also wore 24. And Junior didn't wear 24 his entire career. You might remember that when he went to Cincinnati, he wore like three. He wore 30. I think right. he wore 17 or 19 with the Chicago White Sox. Yeah. The say hey kid making those plays in center field mm-hmm. like Junior was, war yeah. number 24. And I've reached out. Steve Phillips is going to be a guest. What should we name the show? What should we name the show? And everybody says, and I can uh, get your thoughts on it, and I can read to, yeah. you, I can read to you Jason Stark's uh, thought on it. It seems as if everybody's kind of giggling at us. Only in Seattle would anybody, anybody compare Ken Griffey Jr. Well, not compare, but even think that Ken Griffey Jr. is on the same level and in the same stratosphere as Willie Mays. Only in Seattle. I'm actually a little surprised that you're you're taking this 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 tact, and the the reason is because we had a very similar similar conversation for episode twenty. Right, right. A very similar where you. I wanted Gary Payton. Right. And you were like... I wanted the best guy for the job. Right. I want the best guy regardless of background and history and city and hometown. Yeah, I wanted the best guy for the job. And we we settled on... What was it? Episode Barry Barry Payton. Payton. (laughs) Barry Payton, because Barry Sanders. Right. Barry Payton was... Yes. Because I was like, we we can't not, being a show based in Seattle... Yeah. Even though it's much broader than that. Okay. We can't we can't just discount the hometown guy again, even though it's broader than that. And you brought it to my attention. There is no way that we cannot have Barry Sanders right. affiliated with that That's episode. Right. That's right. I feel the same way about this episode, personally, where it's Griffey in a local sense. Yes. And it's Willie Mays in a global sense. Yes. And it's so you split. The it's difference. Willie Griffey. <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's not Ken. No, it's it's Willie Griffey. It's Willie Griffey. Okay, so so then we've decided that you get you get an advantage by playing your days in Seattle. Sure, we've decided that. Well, we're, we're not just doing the best guy for the job. Here's what Jason Stark wrote to me via text. This mm-hmm. is a text. Mm-hmm. I I wrote to him that I need him for eight or ten minutes on episode twenty four. To help me figure out this problem. I explained the problem that we named yeah. the shows after people who wore the numbers. And he wrote that he couldn't do it. But he also wrote, if this were anywhere but Seattle, this wouldn't even be an argument. Has to be Mays. If you want to award extra Seattle points, though, I get it. Mays is one of the most iconic players ever. You realize that. <laughs> He's one of the five best players in the history of baseball and significantly above Griffey in center field. Significantly above Griffey in center field. I just looked up their wins above replacement. Uh, War, out of curiosity mostly, it's not even close. Mays is a 155.4. Griffey's an 83.8. I don't even know what War is, really. I don't understand it. No matter what you think of War, that's not close enough for any wiggle room in this debate. Sorry. That's Jason Stark. Okay. So if we are putting now, Ken Griffey Jr. is one of the probably the fifteen best 
17 best players of all time. Mm -hmm. This guy, Willie Mays, is one of the five best. Right. If we are truly giving Junior half of this deal, then we are setting if the if the precedent wasn't set with with because I don't think you know I think of Barry Sanders to running backs and Gary Payton's to point guards I don't think it's an audacious conversation mm-hmm. now maybe you'd say the same thing about Ken Griffey Jr. to center fields and Willie Mays center field it seems to me that Barry Sanders had he played longer would have been one of the greatest of all time 100 as it was he was a Hall of Famer and a great running back who may or may not have been the best of his generation because there was Emmett, Emmett Smith at the same time was playing in Dallas yeah. as as Barry Sanders was in Detroit. And he stopped his career like 10 or 12 years into it, and that was it. He walked away like mm-hmm. Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. And Gary Payton was probably one of the two or three best point guards in the history of the, the NBA. Or am I wrong about that? No, I mean, he's he's in the discussion, yeah, especially right? because of his defensive prowess, his scoring, his assist. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I didn't feel when we went Barry when we went Barry Payton mm-hmm. that we were giving that much of an oomph of a push of a shove to uh to Gary Payton as I feel like not because of Junior because Junior was great. And by the way, Junior was the greatest baseball player I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. I have said that a million times on the old radio yeah, show. Yeah, me too. In, in my lifetime of watching baseball, I never saw a better all-around player than Ken Griffey Jr. I'm too young to have seen Willie Mays right. play in his prime. But everybody to a man, and we'll listen to Steve Phillips, everybody to a man says, as great as Junior was... In just about every category, Willie Mays was better. So I think I am giving a little credence to the hometown thing. I, I am. Because if we were just doing it, like you said, on who's the who's the better man for the job, right? it's Willie Mays. Correct. It's Willie Mays. Correct. So I'm giving a, a little nod to Junior having spent some time here and been iconic here in Seattle. Again, knowing that it's brought in that. So other, now are we going to do that every well, single episode? We're going to find a Seattle guy and and put him in the conversation. Well, how many of those? Jay Buhner should no, have been no, no, 19. No, 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 or, no, no, no. How many of those could stack up? Like you just said, you didn't feel like with with Gary Payton and, and Barry Sanders, it, the the delta between those was so wide that we couldn't have a conversation. We're not talking about chop liver here. Yeah, we're not yeah. talking about no. average everyday Joes, guys that were great right. Seattle right. hometown players. We're talking about elite level Hall of Fame caliber people, and there's not that many. Right. There's not that many. So, right. it, you know, in this in this argument, plus these are two guys in the same sport where we had a, a basketball football guy. These guys could be could be matched up number for number, all that deal. I, I still say Willie Griffey. Willie Griffey. Okay, let's make the decision at the end of the show. Okay. As opposed to in the beginning, so that we can hear Steve Phillips and give him right. the floor and consider this a little bit more. Uh, by the way, the other 24s, if you want to go through a, a couple yeah. of them, yeah. you, I don't think you think of Kobe Bryant as 24. He's on the eight, list. 24. He's more of an 8 to me than yeah. he is a 24. Maybe he's a 24. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Henderson. Mm-hmm. In any other conversation, you'd want to have Ricky in the in the chat. One of my favorite players growing up. Loved Ricky Henderson, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Leading off with home runs and yeah. stealing 100 stealing bases. bases. Just crazy. Crazy. I am the greatest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Manny Ramirez was 24, if that does anything for you. No. Sam Jones in, in NBA circles NBA. was 24. Mm-hmm. Bill Bradley yeah. of, the Nick, of, the, of the Knicks was mm-hmm. uh, 24. Rick Barry yeah. was 24. Some of the other... 
some of the other terrific 24s. Jeff Gordon, NASCAR. Jeff Gordon I brought up to the conversation mm-hmm. on Twitter a couple of days ago because I don't know I don't know NASCAR and I asked the question, how do you compare what Willie Mays and Ken Griffey Jr. is to or are to baseball? What is Jeff Gordon um, to NASCAR racing? And I got I got answers all over the board. Mm-hmm. Some say he was a polarizing figure. Some say he was he, he made it mainstream. I mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, for now, we'll just kind of hold off and we'll okay. keep it between Griffey and the Say Hey Kid. Like it. Okay. Um, some, some, some tweets. Can I get to some listener sure. tweets, some reaction? I, I can't tell you how surprised I am. I mean, I knew that 23 was going to be good because the Bracken, Michael Jordan oh, in Seattle story. story that he everybody told it loved. So well. He did a nice job. Yeah. You, you were a little concerned about that. Am I allowed to, you know, you know, Bracken, you were like, hey, yeah, yeah. Is he going to tell the story? I mean, you, you were a little concerned about his delivery. He's not a pro radio guy. No, or he did or a great job. He did a fantastic job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with a little editing uh, in there. <laughs> um, uh, but everybody loved 23. I didn't think we would ever be able to top 22 because of the Ben Wright thing yeah, and ben the Wright wheels thing. Mm-hmm. Talk about finding his birth parents and we told stories and... I just felt like when we delivered 22, all right, that's it. We've peaked. We should just quit. Yeah. And then 23 came along, and people actually loved the the Michael Jordan in Seattle story so much that it kind of ruled the day. Well, It won the day. Don't discount the Sean Chabot story. <laughs> because while the Jordan story was amazing, and, and John Johnny Boy did a great job. Johnny Boy. Johnny Boy did a great job. Yes. The, the cherry on top. <laughs> Was the Sean Chabot story as well. So you got to give credit. You like the Sean Chabot story. Yes. Matthew Gronlin writes, the story element that you guys have added to the podcast is amazing. John Bracken's retelling of CT's packing was hilarious. I sat in the car, parked in the garage, finished the interview because of today's holiday commute. Nice seats, Johnny boy. Uh, Maddie L206 tweets, if J-Ham hasn't heard the rental car California vacation story, it's my fave and a classic. Haven't heard it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the honeymoon oh. rental car disaster story. So we'll add that one to the list. Nick Burnham writes. Now, by the way, somebody writes J Ham yes. in Portland. Yes. What's the deal? Is it is why can't I get you to it's a it's, it's a, a it's an episode twenty four classic. It's a 10, 15 minute story. It's that lo- so? So are mine. What 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 am, what am nah, I yeah, yeah. Nah, nah, nah. We'll we'll save it. Really? Yeah. You're gonna just put the stiff yeah, arm yeah. on me. Yeah. Going but straight, I, but straight, I, but I budgeted for that. I'm sorry. I wanted the last segment to be your story of the of the hotel in Portland. No. 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 Okay. Um, Nick Burnham writes another great one. Would love to have you rehash the story of coaching your son in Little League. Can't remember the exact details. <laughs> Only remember having to pull over my car because of laughter and Sandy. Losing it too. I, I there's a lot of there's a lot of stories from me coaching little league. The one that I w- will always remember. The, my favorite story is the Kengo story, which I can we can add to the list as well. Um, we already have Rod, you wanted Rodney Dangerfield the other day. You had asked me for Rodney Dangerfield. There's C.J. Silas, uh, my old producer in Chicago, getting lost in Chicago, which I haven't told that story. So there are there are other ones definitely to tell. So. I was hoping that we were going to go, we were going to go 
Hotel Portland, Jason Hamilton. But I'm getting I'm getting the stiff arm. You are I'm getting, getting the stiff arm. I, I, <clears throat> I need I need a couple of details of the story to be refreshed to me because it's who been does s- that? My wife. Oh, she was there. Uh, yeah. Oh, my whole family was there. Oh, oh, geez. Oh, this is why <laughs> it's going to take. I'll preview this by saying it's the NCAA tournament. The Huskies are playing in Portland. I'm staying at the team hotel. The fire engines were a coming, (laughs) and I basically (laughs) shut the hotel down before a game. See, I don't think of you with your family. I think of you on these these game trips. My whole crew – you shut and the my hotel poor down. little daughter. Oh come on! You you got to tell the story. No, Just I, tell I, the I can't. Story. I can't because there's there's some details about this that I want to okay, make sure. You promise you'll do it in episode twenty five. Promise uh, you'll do it in episode twenty five. You know, for planning sakes, and yes, allow me to yes, plan. Yes, I will tell. You will do it in episode. 25. I will tell it. Matter of fact, yeah. Lindsay Schwartz, Daniel's broiler, called me. After I told this story originally years ago, yeah, and literally said he was laughing, peeing in his pants. Yes, he was peeing his pants, not peeing in, his, in pants. his pants. Yes, he was I will tell the pants. story, but I want to get, I want to make sure I tell it right. So I want to make sure everybody gets their money's worth on that deal. <laughs> we will get, we'll get our money's worth. Yeah. All right. So I'll tell a story. You can pick from from. You can pick for the last segment of this episode. The last mm-hmm. segment of this episode. I want to go through some of these things yeah. real quickly. But the last episode after the two, uh, the the last segment, I should say, after the two segments with the author of the Tim Donahue mm-hmm. story and Steve Phillips, you get to pick from these. Okay. I'll tell one or two of these stories that since you're not going to tell the Portland one until hopefully episode 25. I want to get to a couple things. Number one. It's late. It's a late night recording mm-hmm. because your dogs have done it again. They've just yeah. shut somebody. It didn't look good at the beginning. They Ooh. gave up about 10 or 14 points like in the first like three minutes of the game. And then Utah just couldn't score almost the remainder of the game. Uh, and Washington is now 12 and 1. Mm-hmm. The dogs are 12 and 1 impact 12 play their defense is for real and like you said you know Cedric Bearfield from Utah hit four threes early in that side note Cedric Bearfield's father and I were teammates at San Diego State just that means a lot old man exactly <laughs> that's exactly what it means and Cedric Bearfield's a senior it's not like he's a freshman he's a senior but um yeah once Washington and Cedric Bearfield actually picked up his second foul and went out of the game defensively Washington clamped down that 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 momentum a big dominant green three to end the half and they went up six and came out first five four minutes of the second half last four and first four yeah always big in college basketball Washington was able to do that their defense is for real I mean it just I mean 45 points tonight uh in that game and and uh, so now you know 12 and one 12 and one 21 and five 21 and five. That's 13 games. They've got five games left. Mm-hmm. By my calculation, they've got Colorado at home, Oregon and Oregon State at home, and Stanford and Cal on the road. Correct. It's five games. They went into tonight. If you took every bracketologist in the world that projects these things before tonight's game, and you took every one of them, let's say 150 of these guys that do the bracketology, mm-hmm. and you take all 150 and you averaged 
where Washington sat on all 150, yeah. they would have averaged going into tonight's game a 7.87. Okay, that's so, an improvement, so, a hairline improvement over right. the last time. You said 7.98, right. I believe. 7.87 yeah. is their average seating in the world. Mm-hmm. So they're right now kind of a high 7, low 8 before the game against the win yes. against Utah. Yes. So they're going to go up a little bit because teams are going to lose around them, right? Mm-hmm. And then let them beat Colorado over the weekend and go up a little bit more and maybe by Monday we're talking about a solid 7, high 6. So, so, and I'm just going to keep saying what I said even though bracket Dave doesn't agree and nobody agrees <laughs> on yeah. Twitter. No, I'm just saying keep winning. Oh, yeah. Just keep That's winning, it. and I'm telling you by attrition. Let's call it by attrition. It won't be because they're doing anything special because they're not going to beat anybody in these next yeah. five games. Yeah. But just keep winning because I'm watching teams, six seeds, seven seeds, eight seeds, nine seeds, lose every night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I'm watching teams. I'm watching yeah. where they are, and one team loses here, and one team – they're just going to keep winning post that 17-1 and one, Take oh. seventeen and one to the conference tournament in Vegas, and I'm telling you, I would not put it by them to get up into kind of the protected seed area, at least in the conversation. Sure, at least in the conversation. You'd be twenty six and five if you do that. Twenty six and five 20, going, going into the, the Pac twelve tournament, correct? With three, hopefully three to play. Three to play. Ooh, I, I just I, I know the Pac twelve sucks, and I know oh no, they can't go up any higher because the Pac twelve sucks. But if teams keep losing yeah. and the people that seed these things have to keep moving some teams up, they will move teams up that are winning games, regardless of whether they're winning against top 10 teams or lower-rung teams. It'll be interesting to see. Let's just if that, see. If that, I, think the, I think the top end is higher than everybody else's mm. top end. We'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. When is the game on Saturday? Uh, 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Okay. Late night on Saturday with uh, with Colorado. All right, what are the other things I want to ask you about? I want to ask you about the YMCA. Mm-hmm. It's on my list. It was on my list for the last episode. We didn't get there. Okay, you've been tweeting about the YMCA and something that you're a part of, and I want to I want to talk about it, and I want to be a part of it. If you're going to be a part of it, I want to oh, be. Oh, look a part at that. That's very right? nice. What, what is it? I've been on the board of the YMCA Greater Seattle for the better part of five years, maybe more. And we have an annual capital campaign for various things. And I would say if you grew up in and around the Pacific Northwest, you have seen or live near a branch of the YMCA or as a child, depending on how old you are, went to a camp. Uh, There's many, many different camps now that the YMCA produces. But a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I went to camp where Kyla was a little kid or I did this as as a younger person. My particular YMCA story is I played in their basketball leagues as a little kid. My dad was my coach. Uh, I played here locally around and was, was affiliated with the YMCA since I was very, very small. So. Later in life, when I was asked to join the board, I was I was more than willing. And so, um, like I said, this is an annual capital campaign for various things that are happening in and around the community. Uh, the tweet that I, I mentioned at Jason D. Hamilton on my Twitter was about um, raising money for uh, issues like 
teen violence and homelessness, as well as all the other things. There's a million reasons to support the Y from the swim and gym kind of thing, which yeah. people know, yeah. the camps, the outreach, there's street outreach and, and a whole bunch of things. So I was trying to raise a minimum of $5,000. I've put in far in excess over that over the last five years. So what's the date? What's our deadline to get get up to five thousand dollars i would i would like to do it by by march 15th march 15th Mm -hmm. march 15th yeah uh can can we can we extend it to march 19th can i get a four-day extension yes i can give you a four-day can you give us because mitch unfiltered is in yeah i'm telling you right now i'm making a commitment okay i don't know what the dollar commitment is but we're in mitch unfiltered is in i appreciate that so we're definitely in yes and then we want to help you promote it and talk about it and i'd also like to talk about it at the daniels unfiltered March Madness, which happens on March 19th in Bellevue. So I'm asking for four extra days, and maybe we can just blow the doors off of five and get to 10 or 15 yeah, or something like that. that. All right? Yeah. So we're in. We're, we're behind you. Mitch Unfiltered is behind you. I, I have a little bit of reservation just because you won't tell the story on episode 24, yeah. and I don't know that I'll be alive come episode 25. I hope I will. Yeah. So, well, I'm in the will. <laughs> so uh, I think we're good. I, think I we're wanted good. the story in episode 24, yeah. but I'm not going to get my way. All right, a couple of things and I'll ring the bell. North Carolina pounded Duke. That's kind of story two. Story one is a certain number one overall pick hurt his knee coming out of his Nike shoes. Yeah. I think they're Nike shoes. Oh, yeah. Paul George shoes. He was coming out, and he smilingly sprained his knee. And the first thing I heard from people was, oh, he should just not play the rest of the year. Why would he play the rest of the year? He's got to protect that. I mean, he, just let him be the number one pick in the draft. Stop playing. Sorry, he, no. He doesn't, he doesn't need the NCAA tournament, Zion Williamson. False. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, but he's going to he's gonna play as soon as he's ready. He wants a championship. He went to Duke to win a title. Uh, and, yes, that was the collective breath went out of Cameron Indoor. I mean, you know, you have a guy, and it uh, happened really early in the yeah. game, like right and at the beginning changed, of the game. It changed the game. I mean, right. UNC was already ahead in the game, yeah. But once Zion went down, that thing was 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 over, and that's actually disappointing that Duke has a bunch of other great players, first round guys, like lottery two, guys, three, four, exactly. and five. They have, and they weren't able to rally at home. That was very disappointing. But right. I understand. I mean, sometimes that happens. You, you're, you're all in and one of your main guys goes down and, and you fall into a little bit of a rut. I have two requests for Zion Williamson. Number one is I want him to be in the NBA slam dunk contest next year. Mm-hmm. I want it to be like the old days for one year where all the great players, yeah. like Jordan did it every year, I think. Dominique Wilkins was in it most years. Uh, you know, they, they competed against yeah. one another. I want, I want LeBron James to do one slam dunk contest. I want the Greek freak to do one slam dunk contest. Mm-hmm. I want Zion Williamson in that contest with those two guys throw in Atlanta like a a Donovan Mitchell or a Aaron Gordon the, Zach, Levine. The, Zach Levine yeah, yeah I'm gonna do Diallo but I, but who but won I, it this year yeah but I want I want Zion Williamson the Greek freak and LeBron James oh, in, in the so slam good. dunk contest one year just all out everybody says I'm in they start tweeting if you're in I'm in if you're in I'm in it and let's just do it can I can I do that's my quick, first quick one. sidebar yeah you're not gonna forget number two are you no Number two is more important. 1987. Yeah. My first year as a ball boy for the Sonics, all-star game, Seattle. 
Jordan baseline. I'm sitting underneath the standard. Really? When he did the thing. The side. Went, the oh, first time he does oh. the side cradle. He did the free throw line oh. and the side cradle. I'm a little kid. Just, again. Oh, that's Ter- beautiful. Local that- guy, Terrence Stansberry, does oh, the yeah. Statue of Liberty. I mean, great memories. Good stories from did that Jordan as well. Did Jordan win it? Jordan won that. Yes. Yeah. And Do- and Dominique was in that one as well, I think. Right? No. Yes. No. Dom was so. in that one as well. Yeah. yeah. Clyde Drexler. Okay. So the other anyway. thing, the other thing that you don't, you know, I don't know how serious the Zion Williamson yeah. injury is, yeah. and, I, and you know, people don't want him to take the NCAA tournament off and forget the rest of his freshman year. Mm-hmm. I understand that's ridiculous, but I really think they ought to, for precautionary reasons, you ought to sit out at least their next game. Just sit out their next. Gross. game. Gross. Gross. Just one game. Just sit out one game. So should just I just to make tell sure. people that they know they're playing Syracuse? Uh, oh, they are? Oh, oh I, I didn't know. I had no idea. <laughs> um, your profile picture on your Twitter? Yes. Can we talk about that? Sure. What would you like what to know? What the hell? What the hell happened? You were you were wearing a cap. You were looking at me wearing a cap, wearing a cap for years. You're wearing a cap, mm-hmm. looking at me. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. you're smoking a cigar. Mm-hmm. What, what, what happened? It's your fault. It is? It's absolutely a result of you. Really? So you did I not, want to see how you tie that. You let didn't me, you let did, me let me you did not sit back this. and enjoy this. You did Go not ahead. know this. Yes. In our last discussion in episode twenty three, Michael Jordan. Yeah. We had a conversation about Matt Kuchar. And we went round and round basically agreeing and then whatever the heck it ended up being. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I have my thoughts on that, but go ahead. Yeah. I, the next day, yeah, I was thinking about that conversation, but more importantly, I was thinking about the tournament that he won, which was at Mayakoba, which I mentioned to you. You had been there. Yes. So I was uh, reminiscing. Don't tell me that's, that was where you were smoking the cigar. My wife took that picture <laughs> of me at Mayakoba, smoking a cigar. Enjoy myself in Cancun, and I put it up just for you. I like the picture then. Um, the Pittsburgh Steelers called John Schneider and say Antonio Brown for number 21. Number 21 overall for Antonio Brown. Schneider says, what do you mean? You can get more than that. Just one? You can get more than that. No, we can't. We're willing to do it right now. Yes or no, right now, you get Antonio Brown. You get all the baggage that comes along with them, all the problems. You get the big contract, yeah. the big salary cap number. You got to give us number 21. And John Schneider says, hold on, Rooney, yep. Art Rooney. Yep. I, I, I got to call somebody to find out if I should do this. I'm getting nervous. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to call my friend Jason Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Jason D. Hamilton's going to tell me. Yeah. Phone a friend? Yes. Mm-hmm. No. Or maybe so on Antonio Brown for number 21. Well, I would say maybe so. It's not a it's not an absolute yes, because I I gotta admit, I don't understand because you're asking me this right now, the salary cap implication and what that's gonna do. Because really the bigger thing is Russell Wilson. So how does Antonio Brown's contract All right, affect let me, that? Let me let me help you with that. Let's say it doesn't affect Russell Wilson. But let's say it affects Frank Clark. Uh, let's say it affects uh, Fluker or Sweezy or maybe even a long-term extension with Bobby Wagner. No, I pass. 
You pass. I pass. So the only way you do it is if you can do it and sign all of your guys, then would you do it? If I said it doesn't affect any of those guys, it doesn't affect Wagner, Fluker, Sweezy, yeah. it doesn't affect it doesn't affect Frank Clark or Russell Wilson, then are you giving up? See, here's my question. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it dawned on me today when I was thinking about this mm-hmm. that I don't know, and this is going to be terrible, it's going to sound terrible, I don't know how confident I am in the draft choice anymore. Right. That's why I don't care about the first round pick. I care about production. I'm saying I'm not sure I'm as confident in who they're going to select at tw- that they're going to select the right guy at 21 no. who's going to be going to be it's been a while, Jason. Right. It's been a while. So their basically tra- your, their your, recent yeah. track record of number ones has been it's been a while since they've hit since they've I, I guess Frank Clark was a yeah. was he a first rounder yeah he was a first I think he maybe he was a second rounder maybe he's a second rounder it's just that their track record I I know I don't know I I might I might grab the wide re- the, the the known commodity wide receiver the all pro wide For receiver sure. and take take my chances on what he brings to the table that's what I was thinking is you want the production of somebody that understands the NFL, has proven themselves in the NFL, and, right. and yes. So for that reason, I would say yes. But for all the other reasons that you talk about, the real reasons, the implication, the salary, all that, I, I think you pass. I think you pass. And, and by the way, it's going to be way more expensive than that. So this is you a would very, think, very hypothetical. You would think you would it's going to be. Yeah. You would think it's going to be. Okay. All right. Steve Phillips, two segments with – Scott Eden, mm-hmm. I'm going to introduce you to the writer of this phenomenal piece in ESPN the magazine, this expose, this investigative piece of journalism that I think will win awards. When you sit down and read it, you'll understand what I'm talking. It is a it is a great, great, fascinating tale and story that's true now yeah. about Tim Donahue. He's going to do two segments with us on episode 24, and then you've got to decide which story you want. Do you want C.J. Silas? Do you want Do you want Rodney Dangerfield? Do you want Kengo of Little League fame? Do you want the car, the rental car in California? You got to make. You have to oh, make some. Uh, I got oh, it. and by the way, I meant to tell you, hmm. Feinstein thing blew up. Oh, are you aware? I saw Feinstein's retort, and I saw that you retweeted that, which was hilarious. <laughs> You are a piece of work, man. Well, 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 you are a retort piece of what? Retort, not retort from me. No, no. His response to yeah, somebody all of a sudden, him. Mitch somebody unfiltered listeners him. are yeah. now are now teasing John Feinstein, and they're drawing him into yeah. conversation. And there's debates, and I, oh, yeah. I stayed. I thought I stayed out of it, except for the retweet. Yeah, I thought I kind of stayed out of it, but it's going back and forth on Twitter now. Feinstein's involved, and the thing that c- kind of puzzles me about Feinstein is that his thing with all of our listeners, I've been reading it, is you guys don't know the whole story. You don't mm-hmm. know the real story. And I'm sitting around in my home reading that going, okay, what is it that I don't know? Because mm-hmm. the last time I ever had a word with John Feinstein was the time that he hung up the phone and then sent me the me- the voicemail. Well, he c- there's, never been a, a, there's never been one iota of communication since so what is the what is the part that people don't know that he keeps saying people don't know well he's saying something happened prior to that it was that's what he was saying he was saying before you did the rick riley thing there was there was some some business 
that happened before that. No, you misread that. I he, did? He, yeah, he, he was said prior to my problems. There was a little drama in his mind before the Rick Riley thing. If there thing. was, I have no idea. If okay. there was drama, then why was he on the... Why was he, I, I, I'm I just know. telling you yeah. how I thought I yeah, read those no. tweets. No, I don't think so. All right. Anyway. All right. Uh, let's get to some interview segments, some fascinating interview segments, and then story time at the end, and we got to figure out what we're naming episode 24. So you know the huge news from Daniel's Broiler. The brand new location at the new downtown Hyatt Regency is now open. World-class hospitality makes each Daniel special. Daniel's new downtown location truly unique. This new downtown Daniel's now open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. That's right, a new downtown Daniel's serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner all seven days. If you live or work downtown, planning an evening downtown or visiting Seattle, you now have a world-class choice for prime steaks and seafood. Daniel's new downtown location located on the second floor of the new downtown Hyatt Regency at 8th and Howell. You make your reservations today for this world-class addition to the Daniels family, locally owned by the Schwartz family, South Lake Union, Leshy Marina, Bellevue Place, and now the new downtown Hyatt Regency at 8th and Howell, Daniels Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Well, it's episode number 24. And about two weeks ago, before we had remembered that a certain Say Hey Kid wore also number 24, we thought that this was going to be an easy one to name. And it's not so easy. In fact, uh, we've called upon some of the great judges and juries on the East Coast. Our friend, former GM of the New York Mets, Steve Phillips, is going to help us name episode number 24. Now, I hate to heap this upon your shoulders, Steve. Yes. But um, a, lot a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people that think we should just give the edge. We should give some weight to the fact that we sit here in the Pacific Northwest and Junior is the greatest athlete that this town has ever known. And so um, is it that simple when you compare Griffey? And, I guess in the prime of Griffey's career, there were probably lots of comparisons to Willie Mays, right? They kind of played a little bit similarly, didn't they? Sure. Oh, yeah. I think I think that that Griffey was probably the more beautiful player. Like everything seemed so easy and so graceful, and Mays had more explosiveness, let's say, to his game. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think certainly you look for that that combination of power, speed, the offensive game, the defensive game, the big plays, the clutch hitting. They both had all of that as part of their arsenal. So is it just as easy to say? Okay, Mays was one of the best two or three players of all time, and Junior's one of the best ten or twelve or fifteen. Or is it not that simple? I think it's I think it's pretty close to that simple. I really do. I mean, I, listen, I, with all due respect to Ken Griffey Jr., and I mean it. And you know, a lot of times when people say that, they're like, you know, with all due respect, and it means like with absolutely none whatsoever. That's not how I mean it. I mean, I, listen, he he is he was an extraordinary player that had so much charisma. Uh, and and it, it oozed out of his pores, and certainly he impacted. You know, in a game that has become so regional, he was a national player, uh, and and you know the game I think became more and more regional the way that uh, it was broadcast, digested, and consumed by fans. But Griffey was a guy that everybody knew, and and there's no question that that 
he was a highlight reel. Every day he was doing something to help his team win. But when you look at the, the numbers, like you go back and look at the numbers from Willie Mays and, and what he did in his career, you know, the 660 home runs, over 2,000 runs scored, 1,900 RBIs. Uh, you know, you go, you go to the new metrics, the, the OPS Plus, where it's park-adjusted, a 156 OPS Plus, and where Griffey had an extraordinary career, he was a 136 OPS plus, so a pretty significant differential there. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, that Griffey is absolutely one of the top 15 players in baseball, but I think when you talk about Willie Mays, you're certainly talking about one of the top five. Should we take into consideration, Steve, the era in which both guys played? Does it make any sense to say what would Junior have been like in those days and what would Mays have been like had he played, you know, 15, 20, 25 years later? Yeah, I think I think it's fair. I think it's fair to have that conversation, and it's always so difficult, right? We, we close our eyes and dream and try to transport that player from the era in which he played into the different era. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, there are arguments in each. There are reasons that numbers are enhanced depending upon the era. But yet when you look at, at you know, what Willie Mays did – you know, it was after, you know, that we had uh, the desegregation and we had, uh, you know, the African-American players playing Major League Baseball. So we, did, we had, you know, no longer the Negro League players separate, but they were playing in Major League Baseball. Uh, and he was playing in the era where uh, the mounds weren't yet lowered for a good part of his career. Uh, and so a bit more difficult. The ballparks hadn't quite changed yet. Uh, and, and yet he had 660 home runs. Uh, and uh, I think for Griffey, you know, he kind of played into uh, the different era, different mounds, different ballparks, although, you know, not always a great hitter's park in Seattle. Uh, but I think when you look at the overall package, I think that even comparing eras, I think, I think Mays gains an advantage in that competition. Okay. Steve Phillips is our guest on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, episode number 24. We're, we're putting up the fight for Junior. I think we're losing the fight. Um, for Junior. How about had Ken Griffey Jr., and look, he, he didn't, so it doesn't really matter, but it's fun conversation, what I'm about to say, is had he remained healthy in Cincinnati when he went over to play for the Reds, I don't remember how many years he played there, but his numbers certainly dropped significantly because he just couldn't stay healthy enough to play and play at his best. Then we're talking, if he does that, now we're talking about a guy who's closer to seven home, 700 home runs, and maybe instead of top 15 in Major League Baseball history, maybe we're having the conversation of Ken Griffey Jr. in the Willie Mays kind of genre of top three or five in the game. I think you can make an argument. You know, you start to, you, you could say that, that, you know, certainly I think when the injury started kicking in, the, the production diminished uh, in some ways toward the end, and it affected his overall rates of performance, right? So, you know, you start looking at some of the prime years of his career, he had an OPS plus of 165, uh, which is extraordinary, uh, 150, 154. Uh, but toward the end, you're talking about more of an average type of a player, you know, and, and uh, 100, 102 OPS plus, well, 100 is the, the average major leaguer. And so you're right. I think, you know, he sort of diminished because of health, and age certainly is part of all of that. Uh, but I, I think it's, it is some part of the story, but it's not a part that we can obviously put aside when we look at the overall comparison. The terrific voice of Steve Phillips, former general manager of the New York Mets. Now, there was some news in the last few days. Finally, it took uh, long enough, at least for one of the guys, one of the big two, 
to come off the board. Who saw the Padres spending three hundred million on on Manny Machado? Yeah, that that would not be me. In fact, that would not even be the Padres, uh, which is the amazing <laughs> part of this. Like, how is it possible that you go into an off season with an off season plan and you don't realize you've got three hundred million to spend? Like, I don't. They, they didn't figure it out themselves until January. You know, Dan Lozano, the agent for Manny Machado, had about six teams in. He said, I want your best offers. We're going to whittle it down and then negotiate from there. And so he got those offers, kind of narrowed down the teams that were involved in it. And then all of a sudden the Padres come out of nowhere and then realize, like, somewhere they dug up uh, something in the outfield and realized, oh, yeah, we've got a bunch of money here, $300 million, uh, a bit of a shocker for sure, and no deferred money as part of the deal, an opt-out after five years. And what will be really interesting to see is how do they balance the money? Is it front-loaded in any way where maybe the opt-out becomes somewhat enticing for Machado, play the five years, get the upgraded premium of the money, and then try at the age of 30 to go back out there and get another five-year contract and actually exceed the $300 million contract? Is he just going to lose 90 games the first time? I mean, they don't have enough players around him uh, no, no one's going to be picking the Padres to do anything this year or next year, or no, am I wrong about yeah, that? Uh, right. No, you're right. I mean, they, they're going to spend $30 million a year for the next couple of years. And they, they, listen, they won 66 games last year. I think they're going to win 73 this year. And so, like, I look at I wouldn't have done what they did for a number of reasons. One, uh, I don't think it, it moves the needle as far as competition for this year. I mean, they're going to, they're going to lose fewer games, but they're still going to lose a lot of games. Uh, and so... Uh, the other part of it is that they signed Eric Hosmer last year, which I thought was a mistake, and they're going to pay him $20 million a year uh, and Machado $30 million a year, and those two combined are going to be over 42% of their overall payroll. Uh, it's going to be really difficult for the Padres in a small market to put together a competitive product moving forward. They also have Will Myers, who's going to make $20 million next year. And, you know, you look at Myers and Hosmer, they both are underperforming the contract. They weren't worth the money they gave them. And then they give one guy $30 million in a small market, and they have no pitching. Uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't see, I personally believe that they'd have been better served to spread the $30 million out around yeah. the field yeah. instead of on one guy. Uh, but they decided to go in that different direction. Uh, was there any place else he could have gone maybe for slightly less money? I know that these guys just want to make as much money as they can, and who blames them, but I'm sick and tired of hearing all I want to do is win, all I want to do is win. Was there no place? I heard Chicago's general manager whining that his deal didn't get done with Machado. Was there any place for him where he could have, say, I don't know, signed for $27 million a year or $30 million but not for the 10 years where he could have had a chance to play some winning baseball? Or doesn't he just – does he not – does he not care about that? No, I don't. I don't. I think that he was going to go for the best deal. Now, how you define the best deal becomes the question. Uh, you know, the White Sox believed they had the best deal on the table because they had a higher annual average value. They had a more than thirty million a year. They were eight years, two hundred fifty million, and then rather than guaranteeing the ninth year and tenth year, they had vesting options that if he was healthy and got enough at bats, that another. Uh, you know, $25, 30000000 million would kick in on the backside of the deal. Now, Machado looked at it and said, listen, he said, I'm committing to you to grow with you in San Diego, uh, and I know that we're going to lose for the next two years. If I'm willing to make that commitment to you, then what I want is for you to take a chance on me on the back end for two years with guaranteed money. 
So he got a $300 million guarantee from them. And so effectively for years 9 and 10, he's getting $25 million a year guaranteed where the, the White Sox weren't willing to do it. They wanted him to have to earn it to get there, and they came up short. And, and, so, and look, the Padres understood. You want the player to lose for a couple of years, then you're going to have to commit to him on the back end of the deal for a couple of years, and that's what they did. Is he a better free agent signing than Bryce Harper? I was always under the opinion, I don't follow it like you do, of course, that Bryce Harper was the marquee free agent and Manny Machado was like 1A or 1B or whatever it is. And now, the more I read on Twitter and social media and statistical analysis and looking at the two players' ages and everything else, I'm starting to wonder whether I was under the wrong impression all this time. Yeah, I think Bryce Harper and Scott Boris have done a great job of building up Bryce Harper and Scott Boris, uh, for that matter. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, Manny Machado is the better player. He is the better all-around player than is Bryce Harper. Now, Harper's had a better season when he was the MVP a couple of years ago. But when you look at wins above replacement, which is the number they sort of quantify value for players, uh, Machado has been better than Harper. Bryce Harper this past year was ranked 78th in baseball in war, including position players and pitchers, 78th. Uh, you know, we just did a ranking on MLB Network Radio where we, we ranked the corner outfielders. I had Bryce Harper as the seventh best corner outfielder, and I don't have him – in my top 10 players in baseball. Hmm. I just don't. I don't hmm. think he's one of those guys. There's too many peaks and valleys. His peak was extraordinary. His valleys are still good, but you know there's a lot of up and down out of him, and his defensive metrics and, and, and performance has been awful. The, re- the reality is his defensive analysis uh, says that he should be a designated hitter. That's how bad he was. He was rated the second worst defensive outfielder in baseball last year a negative 26 defensive runs saved. Uh, and now the year before he was a little bit better, but, but again, you know, so, so he's a complicated guy when you have to analyze him and break down the numbers. Manny Machado is pretty clear. He's a really good offensive player, and he's a really great defensive player, uh, and that gives him the edge over the top. And I think his game ages better than Bryce Harper, where Harper is such a max effort guy with everything he does and that violence in his swing – I worry that his body will hold up with that many violent swings between now and the next 10 years. So what now? Are the Phillies kind of negotiating against themselves? Um, is Washington back in play? I thought Washington was willing to give him to come back uh, $30 million a year. And then the second part to that question is, when does it become counter? How long can he wait before he's behind the eight ball because he's not reporting to camp in time to get his body ready for opening day? It's a great question. Look, what, it's, it's, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of misinformation out there, fake news, uh, some might like to say. Okay. Uh, and so you don't know, right? I mean, it, we keep hearing that the Harper negotiations have gained traction, and there's two teams uh, beyond $325 million. Uh, which would go beyond Giancarlo Stanton contract extension that he got with the Marlins and be the most significant contract all time. Machado has the record now for the highest free agent contract in professional sports history, any sport. Uh, here, here's the thing. I look at it and think the White Sox aren't in because they, they stopped. They preferred Machado over Harper, and they stopped at $250 million in eight years. Therefore, they're not going to go beyond $300 million for Harper. The Phillies stopped. They said that they valued Machado to a certain level and not beyond that, and they stopped. And, and I've never known a team where their plan B, because Machado was plan A for the Phillies. I don't know any team where plan B is 
would cost you more than plan, plan A. a. Like, yeah. why would, like, like, why would you pursue plan B and pay more for him if you like the other guy better? So i got to tell you, everybody thinks the Phillies and Harper are the last two standing at the dance without a partner uh, and that they're going to pair up. But the, the Phillies, I don't know who they're negotiating against. If there's a mystery team out there, I don't think it's the Washington Nationals. And I thought all along maybe, but when they got Patrick Corbin, they got Brian Dozier, they got Annabelle Sanchez, they've kind of, and, and, and Jeremy Hellickson, they've rounded out their team. I don't think they're in. And so I think the Phillies are the only game in town. Why would they go beyond $250 million if that's the line where the White Sox stop? So I think they're, if they go beyond that, they're probably negotiating against themselves. Wow. Sounds like Boris may finally come out of a negotiation with egg on his face. I've thought that a number of times, and he's always pulled the rabbit out of his hat. Yep. And I don't know how many rabbits he has and how yep. many hats he has, but he always seems to find the right rabbit to pull out of a hat. So I, I, as much as it, nothing would probably give me some pleasure to just see some comeuppance, yeah. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know that it's going to happen. How, how about the question of um, how long can he sit out of these camps? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, waiting helped Machado. I mean, it really did. It helped Machado. He got it to $300 million when I didn't think he was going to get there. Uh, and Boris always, you know, slow plays this. But at some point, you do the, 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 the number count on supply and demand, and it's not really changing at this stage of the game. Uh, so, you know, Harper will be a guy who's always going to be in shape and ready to go. Okay. He's a nut job, right? He's, he's a gym rat. Okay. Uh, and, and so, you know, he's in the cage. He's getting his work in. But we saw every player who got you know a delayed start last year, except maybe J.D. Martinez, did not have a great season. So I, I think it's important for him to get into somebody's camp within the next couple weeks to make sure he's ready for the year. Uh, and I, I'll be shocked if they don't get a deal done by then. Steve Phillips, former GM of the New York Mets, Sirius XM Radio, a star there as he is on our podcast whenever he shows up. Hey, have a great trip to spring training down to Florida. Enjoy your time in the sun. I hope you get some some rays, and we'll talk down the line. Thanks so very much for this. And and and, and the, to recap, it's it's clearly episode Willie Mays, right? Not not Ken Griffey yes. Jr. I'm sorry to say, uh, 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 it is the Willie Mays episode. Okay. Yes. All right. Thanks, Steve. You bet. Thanks. So our old friend Steve Phillips is not going to help us pick Ken Griffey Jr. over Willie Mays. He says Mays is the easy choice here for episode number 24. Although. Although, if we want to consider the hometown element and where we are, where we're located, that would certainly boost Junior and maybe make it a combo act. Willie Griffey or Kenny Mays. Um, I like Willie Griffey, I think, more like Jason. Have you heard? We have a fourth sponsor on Mitch Unfiltered. Very excited about this. Lots of businesses reached out, showed interest in partnering up with us, but we were trying to get the right fit. And the Northwest Premier Wealth Manager Evergreen Golf Call is that fit. Founded three decades ago, homegrown and headquartered right here in downtown Bellevue. Super successful, spreading down the West Coast, Portland, San Francisco, and Napa Valley offices now. Not a commission-based firm, a group that invests in the very same manner as they do with their clients. Managing over $2 billion with a B dollars in assets. Headed by Tyler Hay voted one of the 40 under 40 by the Puget Sound Business Journal. If you go to the Bellevue Boys and Girls Club, which I do on Mondays and Thursdays with my boys, and you watch all the kids play basketball, you'll see Evergreen Golf Call on the back of every jersey. A commitment 
to philanthropic efforts here in the community. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Episode number 24 continues. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. It's unbelievable to me that it's already been 12 years since NBA official Tim Donahue got in trouble for betting on games, fixing games. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we're going to be a lot more clear of that situation and that story at the end of this segment. Because joining us on the program is a writer for ESPN, the magazine named Scott Eden, who did just a remarkable piece that you can now read online and in the magazine. How many how many words is it, Scott? I think it's just over 11,000. 11,000 words. I never thought that I could read 11,000 words in a day, but that's how interesting this is. How long did it take for you to do it, and what kind of research uh, did ESPN and you do to be able to uncover all of these details? Right, so the, the original genesis of the idea was, it came in 2017, which was the 10-year, and that would be the 10-year anniversary of the scandal sort of becoming public in 2007. Um, obviously, we missed the deadline of <laughs> producing the article for 2017, but just because there were so many avenues, so many you know, tributaries to explore in the story. Um, and I guess you know, the genesis of, of, of it was the 10th year anniversary, and here is a sports story from the past that is kind of had some mysteries surrounding it and therefore there was a you know we felt like there was territory that still needed to be looked at investigated and and to just tell the story again like a kind of a, the, the romp kind of story that that it was right it's a you know the, 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 there's a there was a narrative element and an investigative element to this which made me you know which intrigued me from the start it's fantastic and so before I ask you to kind of walk through the story with us, and we'll pick and choose our spots, otherwise you and I will be here until next Thursday. Um, and we're talking to Scott Eden about this Tim Donahue story that they did, he did for ESPN, the magazine, and it's on ESPN's website, I believe, as well. What part of this story, because I haven't read everything that's come out over the last 10 or 12 years, what part of your story is new? What would you say are the highlights to your story that people have not read or seen before about this? Well, I guess it's the main thing is, you know, showing as best we could, making a strong case that, that, that the fix was in, that he was actually manipulating the games. Because the official storyline, you know, from the start, even though people were greatly skeptical about the official storyline, but the official storyline from the start was that he, that he did not fix the games. You know, he, of course, has vehemently denied it from the start. He wrote his own memoir, which is essentially a book-length kind of defense of that position that he did not manipulate the games. The FBI... And its kind of conclusion of its investigation, you know, never charged him with, with game fixing or any kind of, or I guess there's a, there is a law in the books called sports bribery, you know, that would kind of cover that, that particular crime. He was not charged with that. He was only charged with illegal gambling. And the FBI in its findings said we could find no evidence that he manipulated games consciously. And then the NBA conducted its own, um, or sourced out or, or, or commissioned yeah. its own independent investigation, um, and they kind of corroborated uh, the FBI saying, you know, we too could find no evidence of manipulating games. So that was kind of the official storyline. I mean, although if you went down the street and kind of took a random poll of people on the street, what, what do you know about the Tim Donahue NBA betting scandal? If they said anything, they'd be like, oh, he was the guy who fixed games. So he, 
but the official line was this, that he, that he did not. And the second thing is, you know, here we are on the verge of legalized sports gambling, which is going to make, and in the United States, and which is going to make it explode. I mean, the amount of money that we'll put now pour in is going to be incredible. And so with that, we're on the cusp of that. We wanted to show, you know, you know, this story became a story about how, how easy it might be and uh, the, the financial incentives there are to fix an prof- American professional sports league, and which sort of runs counter to the traditional notion that, oh, American professional sports are immune to sports fixing. Which I, and we think this story kind of shows, kind of pokes holes in that, in that attitude. Start uh, at the beginning, uh, if you will. Uh, he was a good young official who had a lot of time on his hands during the offseason, maybe surrounded himself with the wrong crowd, played golf four or five times a week, and found himself gambling on football. That's the way all of this started, right, Scott? Yeah, I mean, you know, he comes from a culture of in Philadelphia there of, of referees as well as uh, gambling. It's sort of you know, in, the, in the water to a degree in uh, the, the, the part of Philadelphia that he's from. Um, but yeah, by the time the scandal broke, he was a veteran referee, but yeah, he'd been, he'd been just sort of cat, recreationally gambling for years, um, just as, you know, sports gambling, sure, you know, golf, you know, gambling on golf, going to Atlantic City casinos, that type of thing. So yeah, I mean, um, I think by the end he became, you know, yeah. he, he says this in his own memoir that he was addicted to gambling. And then it started. You characterized the, uh, the lunch that he had with his longtime friend, I suppose it was in the grill after a golf game where the decision was made to now bet on NBA games, you say that goes as far as back as, what, 2000 and what would it have been? 2003. 2003. Talk about the decision between him and his friend to to go ahead and not only bet on NBA games, but NBA games that he was a part of. Right. I mean, that comes from court documents, and it's also spelled out a little bit in his own memoir that, yeah, this was when they crossed the Rubicon, and, you know, they're – they had kind of had, I guess, a Chinese wall up where they would only bet on just all other sports and, and even NBA games that were not his own. But for here's the decision that, and that, that they, I guess, they, you know, they had them, they made it. They crossed that Rubicon, and, and that's kind of the origin yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah. You know, uh, right there, as, as far back as, I think, believe it's spring of 2003. And so he starts betting on NBA games. They start betting on NBA games, he and his buddy. And... How successful were they? What percentage of the games that he was betting on were they hitting? And segue into the into the um, story of his wife finding rolled up one hundred dollar bills in his jacket, in his NBA officiating jacket. I guess at that point, you know, from what I can gather from uh, some some people that I've talked to in the gambling world, that he might have been a fifty five, sixty percent, maybe as high as seventy percent uh, winning at, at on the, his own games when the bets. Were on his own games, so that that's that's high. I mean, that's fifty. Any sports gambler would tell you if you hit fifty-five percent, I mean, you're you're doing extremely well, um, well beyond the average. Um, so here, his wife is, um, who I sat down with. Um, she described this scenes of yeah coming across for the first time, you know, his you know, trying to do the laundry of the. In, in their house, and and finally, yeah, these rolled up wads, and she didn't she didn't want to, or she didn't ever sort of inquired as to where this money was coming from, um, but in retrospect, it was it was obvious to her. And so you say fifty five or sixty percent he was hitting early on. Your piece refers to later on that he was hitting eighty or eighty five or eighty eight percent. Is the notion that at some point 
he started manipulating his calls. Maybe he wasn't doing it at the beginning, but then he started manipulating the way he was officiating these games to fix the game so that he could hit a higher percentage? I think that might be right. I mean, there's no way to know quite what the mindset was early on and how it may have shifted over time. I couldn't, I didn't sit down with him and talk to him, unfortunately, although I tried to. So yeah, but I, I do believe that maybe the 06-07 season when the kind of face-to-face deal happened between him and his co-conspirators, they, 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 he may have upped it then. And then in that sort of December 2006 is when he made a face-to-face deal with yeah. his co-conspirators. Yeah. That's when they, all of a sudden he go, they go on a huge winning streak, and that's the 80%-plus um, stage of this where they yeah, – Something happened then, then, and it really started to. They really started to win. Talk about that deal that you that you mentioned in 2006. People that are listening won't understand. He went from a guy who was just betting the games that he was officiating with his buddy to actually kind of not betting, just kind of giving a tip. Right? He was going to give tips, and others were going to make a lot of money on the tips that he would give, and he, whenever his tips came through, he would get some sort of a stipend. Is that the way it worked? Right. So the co-conspirators and him never discussed fixing. Or to, to, the, to the co-conspirators, it was like it was implied. Right? I, I didn't need to ask him to fix it. I didn't need to say, hey, fix the games. It was just obvious to them that that, that was happening. But they never, I think, purposely like, discussed that or the mechanics of how Donnie would manipulate games, at least in their, in their conversations. But yeah, that's how it worked. Donahue would, would provide a, a quote-unquote pick. They would bet on it. And then if it won, uh, Donahue would get $2,000. And then after, after the win streak started to happen, they kind of they bumped that fee up to $5,000 per game. And if, he, if the bet lost, uh, nothing would happen. He, he didn't owe money. Scott Eden is the voice. He's the author of this incredible expose. I think he said 11,000 words that you can read online. You can read in the magazine, ESPN, the magazine. It's fantastic stuff. It's riveting stuff. Uh, I think our listeners would enjoy the anecdote about how he supplied the pick. How did the pick get to his buddy and then from his buddy to the big-time gamblers. There was a, a, a high school friend um, of Donahue's named Timmy Martino, and he well, yeah, was the go-between, the kind of liaison. And Martino himself was not a gambler. He just knew both parties. He knew Jimmy Batista, who, is the, who was the, the kind of got the real pro gambler slash uh, bet broker. He was just in, in the kind of gambling uh, world. And he said, but this guy, Tommy Martino, was the go-between. And they would use these burner phones, like the cheap, you know, yeah. throw-em-away yeah. cell phones. And Donnie was supposed to communicate to Martino in coded language what the pick was, you know, as early as he could before the game, preferably in the morning before the game, so that they could kind of prepare, so that the gamblers could prepare the market um, for, the, for the big bets. Tell know? him about the code. What was the code? The code was, you know, I maybe I, there's so many little details here, but yeah, the code was um, Tommy Martino had two has a set of brothers, and one brother, you know, yeah. I forget was it Chuck or Johnny, yeah. lived outside of the Philadelphia area, and one lived in you know the Philadelphia area. So if it was the away team, he would use the name of the brother who was who uh, who lived in, you know, out of town, and if it was the home team, he would use the name of the brother um, that was uh, obviously lived in Philly. So. <laughs> 
that was the coded language they used. And, and how, they, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. They kind of messed it up. You know, sometimes <laughs> they would not use. They forget to use their burner phones, and the, to the utter frustration of Batista. Right. Um, they would use their regular phones. You know, possibly incriminating themselves if it came to that, which I believe it did. And so, how 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 much money was being won on these tips? And it just seems to me when I read your piece that the fact that the guy was only getting two or $3,000 for every right pick while others are making over the course of time, it sounds like there are people out there maybe living today that made $100 million on yes. on Donahue's picks, right? That's pretty much the assumption. It's possible, yeah. I mean, it's very hard to determine the exact number. I mean, if not impossible, barring uh, one of the gamblers you know, showing you their accounting books. But um, which they're not going to do. Um, definitely in the millions, and it makes what Donnie was making com- comically small, just comically small. He, Donnie didn't even didn't realize the extent to which the gambling was happening. Right, you know, and you and you and, you, and you've looked into the history of this this thing, and anybody who's ever gambled before knows that when a lot of money comes in on one side, the number, the betting number, the line of the game changes were we finding that during that period in 2006 and 7 when he was offering tips and guys were making all this money that the that the betting line was moving in 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 crazy ways for a regular season nba game right they were swaying violently and it's not just the opening and closing spreads there's a way to get the actual kind of trading history of a spread like from open to post right there's like an opening for the trading session and a closing, just like a stock market. Right. And you can see the tick-by-tick tick price moves for the spreads. Sometimes it'll just, it would open and swing violently through the trading session and then close, actually sort of close to where it stopped. But in that trading session, you can see huge bets being placed on, on these games. Right. And, and then, of course, sometimes it would, it would swing the, the, the spread hugely from open to close. Right, and I want like to come back... Four, four and five points. Right, I want to come back to that because that was part of kind of your... Your data analysis, you layered that. It was beautiful. You layered that and his calls. You took his calls. You looked at a at, at video of, of Donahue's calls in particular games, and you kind of you kind of put one layer on the other with the way the, the line was moving. And we'll get to that in a second because you've also cited some Sonics games, and we're here in the Pacific Northwest. I think people will be interested in that. But before we get there, if you don't mind – Scott Eden is our guest, the author of this incredible expose, uh, uh, just a fabulous piece of investigative journalism on the Tim Donahue story from now 12 years ago. Um, How does it end? Tell everyone about the call that he gets with the driver in his hand getting ready to tee off on the first hole of his club. Tell everybody how the whole thing kind of came down on his shoulders at that point. Right, so the investigation starts, you know, Early, like you know, the uh, supervisory supervisory FBI agent who kind of was the head of the case told me that they got a tip as early as October of 2006, which would have been before the face-to-face deal that Batista did with Donaghy. Um, so they get the FBI starts investigating, and then by early 2007, you know, they're subpoenaing people and they're really getting started. Um, and then there's a grand jury. And they get to Martino eventually. And his Martino, best friend, his friend who was the, who, friend, who was the, the middleman. He was the middleman. Right. Yep, right. The one with the brothers with the coded language. Right. They're friends from high right. school. They get to him. He goes in front of the grand jury, and then Martino calls Donaghy and says, "I went in front of a grand jury." And at that moment, by now we're in summer 
it's after the NBA season is over. It's summer of 2007. And yeah, Donnie writes about this in his own memoir, how he got this call. And yep, he knew it was it. That was it. He um, thought he was having a heart attack. He thought he was having right, a heart attack, right? Right, right exactly. Yep. And um, and so everything comes crashing in. Scott Eden is the voice. He's the author of the piece that took two years to research and write how Tim Donahue conspired to fix NBA games. And when we continue, he's going to tell us exactly what was David Stern's reaction, priceless, and, and what was Donahue doing during the course of individual games like the Sonics against the Mavericks twice to actually fix the outcome. What a crazy couple of weeks of weather we've had in the Pacific Northwest. When you start talking about snowy and icy road conditions, safety is Land Rover and Range Rover's middle name. You simply can't be in a safer motor vehicle on the slippery and dangerous roads than one of the many models at Land Rover of Bellevue. They've got the Range Rovers and the Range Rover Sports. They've got the Velars, the Evokes, the Discoveries. The all-new Defender will arrive in the U.S. and Canada in 20. Can't beat Land Rover of Bellevue. All I've driven in the last 12 years, vehicles I've either leased or owned from this great dealership. The sales squad, beyond knowledgeable and helpful, but without the typical stress that comes along with shopping for a new or even pre-owned car. You remember Dimitri from the Robbie Cano commercials? He runs the dealership to near perfection. A service department that's open seven days a week for your convenience. A pre-owned selection that is terrific. Just off of 520 Northeast 20th Street in Bellevue, Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. Okay, let's get back to Scott Eden, who wrote the piece on Tim Donahue, the disgraced referee who fixed NBA games, and get to the topic of Commissioner David Stern and his reactions. Um, I found really captivating the part of your piece about the FBI's investigation and the mistake that the lead FBI agent claims that he has made, that he made several years later to you, going to David Stern and approaching the NBA, Stern and I think two or three of his associates, um, tell that tell that story as to what happened in that office and why the FBI agent feels like he made such a huge mistake. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, he said if he could do it again, he would not have had that meeting. Um, so, yeah, the FBI, they're well along in their investigation you know, it took him actually some time to even get the name Donaghy, you know, figure that out, because the initial tip was just that there was a referee who might be corrupt. So they find the name Donaghy, they, yeah, they get the grand jury, then eventually, but before that even, they have to, um, they got to tell the NBA that we found an, uh, the ref that's, that's possibly fixing your games. So they, um, they call a meeting with the NBA, and they, they go and debrief, essentially, yeah. uh, David Stern and some of his chief lieutenants, in NBA headquarters in Manhattan. Not so long after that, the news breaks that this, there's, an F, there's an NBA ref under investigation in the New York Post. They were getting ready to wire Donahue, right? They were getting ready to use Donahue yes. to go talk to other officials and other people involved right. in the entire fiasco. And this was going to be, we, we may have learned a lot more, but by telling David Stern, and I love how you portrayed David Stern's reaction to this, what he was really mad about, which fits the bill here, by telling the NBA, he, he is convinced to this day that the NBA is who leaked it to the New York Post for the big headline stories, which essentially ruined any possible 
um, wiring of Donahue and perhaps the accumulation of more people that had gone bad and maybe other even officials in the NBA that had gone bad. That's right. I mean, that was the idea was to see how far it may have gone. Um, but yeah, once the investigation became public, that was, that kind of just puts the kibosh on a lot of different things you can you can do. Um, a lot of different avenues that you could go go down. All of a sudden, if everyone knows that this thing is happening, they clam up, they lawyer up, yep. um, and it makes the investigation that much more difficult. The leak to the NBA, how to, who, who it is, is still a mystery. I mean, people speculate uh, strongly that it was the NBA. The NBA denies that they did that. You know, it's, very, it's a very it's just interesting timing. Stern may have been more upset about the fact that others learned of this first, before his people told him about it, then he may have even been about the fact that it was going on. Yeah, that was Scala's kind of sense uh, uh, after that meeting, was that, that, was that Stern was more concerned that they, that, that their, the hit NBA's own sort of security investigative people had missed this. Right. In our waning moments, um, share with our listeners what Donahue was doing when we look back, when you went and looked back and it was examined in the, the tapes of these NBA games, including you cited two examples of Dallas Mavericks Seattle Sonics games, um, one in Seattle and one in Dallas. I don't even know that you even remember citing those games, but um, yeah. give us a sense of w- when we look back. If we were to sit down with those videos with you or with people that are in the know, we would find what? What was he doing? Yeah, so they would not be red flag, oh obvious, you know, error, erroneous calls. That's not the way he would have done it, because to do that that way would have thrown up red flags. And the, ESP, or the NBA has obviously, even back then, had apparatus in place to check on suspicious calls by refs or bad calls by refs. You know, so he, that would be a, a, not a smart way to manipulate a game. What we've found, and this is based on referees we've spoke to, including um, Ed T. Rush, who was a high you know, executive level uh, referee at the time and helped um, in the Pedowitz invest, which is the NBA's you know investigation of of the Donahue affair, that it was really the volume of calls in every game. There's going to be many gray area where the call could kind of go either way, or it could be a non-call or a call, right? Right. And to make the call is not erroneous; does not send up the red flag. But if you call more of them against the team that you're betting against, you're giving more points to the team you're betting on. Right, and he and he would call he would call six, seven, eight, nine, ten in a row on on one team. In fact, you cited two games where he picked the Mavericks over the Sonics with the spread, and then proceeded to make eight or ten or twelve calls in a row against the Sonics down the stretch in both of those games. One here in Seattle and one in Dallas. Yeah, sometimes they would show up like in you know in series, long series like that. Sometimes just over the course of the game, you know the 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 number of calls he you know is very skewed, imbalanced, it's skewed. Yeah, there are occasions of both of those things happening. And you know if you look at the we did two different types of data analyses and that bears that out. And in addition to human sources, right? And I want I want to yeah I want to mention that it wasn't just your your video analysis and, and officials' video analysis of his calls and the games that he ref. You also have in this story uh, two or three people, one in particular in Sarasota, where he lives, says he broke down in his office and cried and told him the whole story. Has this ever been reported before? Have we ever heard from people that have said Donahue told him that not only did he no. bet on games, but he fixed games and he made calls to make sure that the right outcome came out? 
No, yeah, that's all new. So yeah, that's that's another thing that we came across is people that he had privately admitted this to. And those people and were, are are comfortable coming forward now because a lot of time has passed. Why haven't those guys come forward before? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I guess no one has asked them. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard to believe. What would be the difference in Donahue's life after the scandal had it been proven like it is pretty much now that he did more than just bet on games, he fixed games? That's a good question. I don't know that it would have been too different. I mean, this has been sort of the FBI's kind of position to me was that, you know, in terms of why they didn't work harder to, you know, maybe do what we did, which is to, you know, provide, make a strong case that he fixed, that he in fact fixed the games. Why didn't the FBI do that? And their argument was always, you know, well, his life is, his career's over, you know, He's not doing it anymore. We caught him. We right, got him. Right. Um, we right. got his, co- his direct co-conspirators. Hey, we're a we're a we're a mafia Gambino. That's what they were. They were a Gambino uh, crime squad. We have murder and mayhem to deal with. You know, it, it's kind of it, it, it is not easy to prove or to make a very strong case that someone fixed games. It's not easy to prove it. Well, short of a the guy confessing. Right. 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 So why would they spend so much time doing that? Uh, the future of sports, the future of fixing games on sports. You mentioned aptly in your in your piece, and this is again the voice of Scott Eden, who wrote the investigative report that appears in ESPN the magazine and on ESPN uh, websites and so forth. You've got to read it. It'll take you a long time to read it. It's eleven thousand words. You you mentioned that Adam Silver has been kind of the at the front of the line to try to push gambling and accept gambling and partner up the NBA with gambling. And I would think, and he was in that meeting, by the way, he was, I believe you, you cited that, uh, he was in that meeting when the, uh, when the FBI came to David Stern and said, here's what we got. Um, would you consider him to be not concerned moving forward? I, are you surprised, well, having learned all that you've learned about this story, are you surprised that the NBA is so gun-ho to get involved with regulating gambling? Well, yeah, they're gonna, they're they're at the head of the push for yeah for legalizing gambling in the in the states. You know, obviously it's been illegal for a long time, um, but no, I I would think you know, and it's it is somewhat ironical, you know, because they sometime after the Donahue scandal and the, the NBA, you know, became you know pro legalization of gambling. I think it was maybe even during the David Stern years, he was, he was more, much adamantly, you know, wanted to preserve the ban right. on, on sports gambling. And in fact, lobbied for, the, for right. that right. In, in D.C. to maintain the ban. Um, but sometime after, yeah, they, they, the legalization push came. And I believe their argument is that legalization will make it more transparent, that it will take, you know, gambling out of the, totally out of the shadows and make it easier to suss out when potential fixes happen. However, you, you agree with that? I do agree with that. To, I agree with that to a point. I mean, okay. I'm not, I'm not for a a preserving the ban on sports games. I think it should be legal. I'm not in favor of prohibition in that in that in this realm. Um, but the money will explode. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If it, it once once sports gambling is fully legalized, and I, I envision it to be something along the lines of you can you can just bet online. You know, and it becomes a true huge betting market on the scale of a financial market. You know that that does that will increase the incentive to fix. I mean, gambling is is legal in the UK and in Europe, and the biggest, the most bet upon sport is is uh, international soccer. 
which is plagued with match fixing. So legalization alone is not going to, and transparency alone is not going to stop it. What might help is to have a kind of an independent regulatory body, something like the Securities and Exchange Commission. I mean, you don't ask Goldman Sachs to regulate itself, although sometimes it seems like it, that's what's happening. But you, you, there, is, there are regulatory bodies that are independent of the, of the entities that have skin in the game. And the NBA would have skin in the, in the sports gambling game. Another reason they want to legalize is that it, they want to cut of the, of the take. Yeah, yeah, of course. How, how in the world has this not been a movie? I, I think it's going to be. <laughs> oh, it better be. I mean, of all the... I believe, I believe Tommy Martino is, is involved in, in getting a movie made. Ah. It might be coming out shortly. Okay. I have learned. All right. <laughs> well, uh, as I said, terrific job, Scott. This was just captivating stuff. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that I'm sure you're being pulled in a lot of different directions. I know you're at ESPN's headquarters now and... And uh, it was a great, great piece of journalism and a fascinating read. Congratulations on all the success, and I hope that you and I can visit sometime again in the future. Thanks, Mitch. I really appreciate it. Really terrific stuff from Scott Eden. If you have the opportunity this weekend, I strongly advise you pick up the ESPN magazine, or you can get it on their website, I believe, the ESPN article that Scott wrote over two years about Tim Donahue. If you're home craving great Northwest-style pizza, nice craft beer or cider, don't forget that Zeke's Pizza always delivers. No third-party deliverer here. It's Zeke's who comes right to your door with anything you want, including beer and cider. Zeke'sPizza.com to order online or download the Zeke's Pizza mobile app. I think the 16 locations of Zeke's are a perfect way to watch a game and enjoy a great meal. I loved watching the Super Bowl in Capitol Hill and have already made some plans to watch the NCAA tournament games at Zeke's. I'm going down to the new Tacoma location to watch the dogs who beat Utah the other night in the NCAA tournament. If you're in the South Sound, hope you'll join me, 1702 Pacific Avenue. And by the way, by the way, I think Zeke's Pizza is the perfect spot to take your youth teams after a game or practice to hang out and have lunch or dinner. I've done it a ton of times. They'll happily string a series of tables together and provide a great environment for all your boys and girls to enjoy each other and some great pizza. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. All right, episode number 24. Um, we raised the bar on 22 and 23. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying they, they can't all be... What, 22 and 23? I'm feeling a little bit of heat. I'm getting a little bit of sweat going that everybody expects now. Okay, every episode will be like the Ben Wright Show and the the story about Michael Jordan Seattle. Every episode's going to be like that. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be that way. So you're going to have to deal with that. Okay. Okay, everybody's going to yeah. Not you. Yeah, thanks. You. You're yeah, going to have yeah. to deal with it. Yo. Um, so it was good to uh, have Scott Eden, who I yeah. think is going to win an award for that piece on Tim Donahue. It's a uh, 11,000 words. Could you imagine the dedication? Two years. Oh. They, the, as he said, they wanted to do the, the idea from ESPN was the whole thing came down in 2007. They were going to do it on the 10th year anniversary, 2017, but it took them two years to accumulate all this 
information and testimony and quotes and evidence and do their statistical analysis on his calls. Mm. Two Sonics games. Yeah. Both he called them against the Sonics. Wow. Mavericks, Sonics. He had he had cash on the Dallas. Well, he didn't have cash. Yeah. His tip yeah. was everybody was making millions of dollars on the Dallas Mavericks, and he was calling. He was calling. He called like ten or twelve fouls in a row on the Seattle Sonics in two thousand and seven, or whatever the year was. Yeah. I guess it would be six seven, yeah, seven yeah, here. Six, seven. And then he did the same thing in a Sonics Dallas game in Dallas. in Dallas. So he had something. It's a good thing they didn't miss the playoffs by like two. I don't even know what they did. What did they do in two thousand and seven? They their last year here. That was their last yeah. year here, wasn't well, it? Well, no, yes. I mean, yeah, they did. They made a little run did there they? at the end. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't even. I blocked it all. The whole thing is just kind of a, a vague, a vague memory. Yeah. All right. Before we finish up, you've got Rodney Dangerfield. Mm-hmm. You've got C.J. Silas. You've got the rental car. You got the little league story. All, all of these are good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we're making a habit. I'm going to run out at some point. No, you're not. There's, 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 there's a people million. have to help me remem- yeah, remember, remember them all. Of course, we did Feinstein last week. We did Sean Chabot, the great Sean Chabot. Now people want me to find Sean Chabot and put it, <laughs> like do a where are they now, Sean Chabot. Well, maybe you're gonna stop having to do two in one episode. Right. But, yes. But, yeah. We're done with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna run short. Yeah. Real. I'm gonna be on fumes, man. I'm gonna have no no material left. What do you want to hear? So you remember how we took listener questions and somebody said asked you a bunch of things about how how the broadcast worked how the radio show worked That's right. they were saying you know yeah, do you pay can, regular yeah, guests all yes. that stuff do you tape record yeah. so I, I think i think you need to tell the cj silas story because you said <sighs> she was yeah. a producer on the show well it actually goes it goes back further okay so when i first came to town this is actually a true story there's actually a little a little a little spin-off mm-hmm. um when I was in Washington, I was in Washington, D.C. before I came to mm-hmm. Seattle and got the job to do the midday show. Um, and I was just kind of the jack of all trades in D.C. I was the producer for Tony Kornheiser. And that's there's a, there's a story. There's a couple of stories oh, right sure. there. So add that to the list. Uh, and James Brown. Yeah. And I did voices. I did Marv. I did Howard Cosell. I was the, the, you know, the zany sidekick. Yeah. And then when these guys would go on vacation, which was all the time, mm-hmm. by the way. You mm-hmm. think I had vacation yeah. doing the radio show. These guys, James Brown's initial deal was, you know what? I'm not doing Mondays and Fridays. I'll do Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays during football season. Oh, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm not going to even yeah. do Monday. So I found myself hosting, you know, kind of fill-in. And on the, on the infamous night during the NBA Finals. Oh, don't say OJ. When OJ was in the Bronco, yeah. I was on the air. How is this not the main story? This is not the main story. I was a, a young, I was probably 25 years old. I, did, I was pooping a brick. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I was on the air trying to describe yeah. this goings on in yeah. LA, on the freeways of LA. Yeah. I was doing play by play. Somewhere, there is tape somewhere, there is a recording somewhere of a young 25 year old Mitch Levy. Doing play-by-play of O.J. Simpson in the Bronco Chase of Los Angeles. I'm sorry, we've got to find that audio. 
No, I'm being dead serious. We we got to see if you have any of l- yeah. old school contacts at that I station. I got to find it. I don't know. You've got to find it. Anyway, I got to find it. All right. Anyway, so I come, so right at, that was, so you know that, that was NBA Finals, yeah. what, 94? Knicks Rockets. Like J- June 94? Yes. Okay, so I get the job in December 94, and I, I start in January of 95, okay? And one of the big things that was going on when I was doing the midday show, Mitch in the midday, mm-hmm. was the O.J. Simpson oh, now trial, trial, the yeah. trial of the century, right? Yeah. Jerry Spence was on CNN, and and F. Lee Bailey, and all these guys were sure. becoming household. Greta, Greta Van, Van Susteren. Every, yeah. So I'm sitting there watching CNN, going, "Well, if they're doing something regularly and making a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of money doing it, I should do something regularly on the midday show." So we hired a reporter in L.A., who was living in L.A. at the time, to go to the courthouse and call me every single day from the from the trial. Mm-hmm. And this reporter that we hired happened to have had roots in Seattle. She was from Seattle, and her name was C.J. Silas. Okay, this is okay? getting good. Yeah. And we called her, this was C.J. on O.J. Every day, we went down to L.A. <laughs> for C.J. on O.J. Okay. And she wanted to do it because we were kind of her hometown station. Yeah. And she had roots here, but she was living in L.A. And she was trying to do an acting, I think a little bit of an acting career and doing some other mm-hmm. things. And so we we commissioned her mm-hmm. to do C.J. on O.J. in L.A. All right. After that whole thing came and went, she decided she wanted to move home. And we lo- we had a great chemistry, and she is a wonderful woman. Just a mm. wa- I haven't spoken to her in years, yeah. but she's just a great person. Yeah. And and so she wanted to come home, and I was going through producers pretty quickly in those days. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's not true. Oh, but- actually, it probably is true. <laughs> uh, actually, that probably is true. Actually, I believe she was the first of my own producers. I think they gave me the producer that was already here mm-hmm. when I came to town in the midday show. Yeah. And then it was, it was the process was I was going to get my own man or woman in this case. And right. we hired CJ. She came back home. She lived, she lived in Bainbridge Island mm-hmm. and, and she became essentially producer number one yeah. of Mitch in the midday. Okay. Okay. The NBA finals comes and she's kind of this out of whack character, great, great character on the air. She's mm-hmm. just a free spirit. She's great on the air, great producer. She's just she's doing great. And the the NBA Finals comes, yeah. and we decide. I think at that Sonics point, Bulls, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Sonics Bulls, yeah. Which would have been June of nineteen ninety six. I had changed from middays to mornings in May. Or in yeah, I think it was April fifteenth, nineteen ninety six. I did the midday show for one year, and then they moved me to mornings, okay. which I didn't want. Which is another story. Okay. I wanted no part of the mornings. Okay, and then my agent at the time said, "If you don't do the mornings, I quit." Okay, you can't do okay. these little <laughs> sides. Okay, so right. so now I'm doing the morning show. Yep. Uh, I've replaced uh, Michael Knight and New York Vinny. Oh, sure. And the NBA Finals come, and they're in Chicago, and we're going to take the show on the road to Chicago. So we take the show on the road to Chicago. I think we take the whole station on the road to Chicago, mm. but this is the first big chance for the oh, new morning sure. show. And the new morning show, I'm just going to tell you, it sucked. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> 
So we take the morning show to Chicago. Yeah. And I say, I get the troops together and I'm like, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to do a lot more than just the NBA finals. Princess Di, Lady Di happened to be in Chicago during game one, not for the games, but she just happened to be there at the same time as games one and two mm-hmm. in Chicago. I just remember that. Mm-hmm. And I said, CJ, you're going to go to Lady Di's hotel and wait for her to come out and do play-by-play of her coming out. Uh, you're going to go interview people in the Oprah line. You're going to go to Chicago somewhere, Wrigley Field. You're gonna, yeah, I want you to go out and about and call in with people. We're going yeah. to bring home the taste, the flair of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we're going to make this morning show bigger than just the NBA final. Oh, I love that. She said, I love that. And this was going to be great. This was the plan. And we started executing the plan. I remember her going to Lady Di's hotel and doing doing play by play of her coming yeah. out into the getting in the car, oh which gosh. was just terrible idea. <laughs> um, but that's beside the point. And so one day we were there like two or three days. Mm-hmm. One day she goes out, CJ mm-hmm. from OJ fame, yes, and does not come back. Like she's going to do a segment and. What do you mean? She, she went out. I, she went out to do some some man on the street, woman on the street yeah. to call in. She may have called in, may not have. But even if she did call in, after she called in, we were expecting to hear from her again. She's the producer of the show. We expected her to come home, right. come back to us. Yeah, she was go- poof. CJ was gone. And oh my, I remember goodness. being. Fifty percent scared out of my mind. What's gone? What's wrong? Where right. is she? She get abducted. And fifty percent, I want to kill her. Right, right. My producer just left me. Yeah. But I don't want that fifty percent to take over <laughs> right. until I know she's okay. Right. Of Once course. I know she's okay, she and I have a very big problem Indeed. on our hands. Indeed. Okay. So we're looking for, and I don't. I guess there were cell phones in '96. Yeah, there were yeah. cell phones yeah. in '96. Yeah. We couldn't find her. And the show continued, and it ended. We went off the air. No CJ. CJ came back later that day or night or whatever, or we saw her the next morning or whatever, and she profusely apologized. And I don't – this is where – I'm sorry, I can't give you specifically okay. what she said. It's not that important to the story. Yeah. But she said something like she ran into an old friend in a store, like out of the blue, a coincidence or something, and she started kibitzing, talking, chatting, yeah. and the day got away from her, and she's so sorry. She'll never let it happen again. What? She just, she just uh, I don't remember the exact yeah. excuse, but it was something, something along like, those lines. I got caught up. I, caught up, yeah. and, and I – at this point, I, I can't even look at you. Me looking at you, I wouldn't see you. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing like red. Yeah. Like I'm a month into this thing. The morning show's failing. We suck. Yeah. They're, the, the station is pissed they've changed from Michael Knight in New York, Vinny, to us. Yeah. And we go to Chicago and my producer goes AWOL because she like met a friend. Right. Or something. Yes. And, and... Again, I, I want to repeat before I give you the kicker, I love CJ. Mm-hmm. She was great, mm-hmm. and she is great, and I hope if she ever hears this, <laughs> she knows how much I love CJ. Yeah. Uh, and if she does listen to this, she's probably giggling because she remembers. Mm-hmm. So um, we finish up in Chicago. We come home. That's when Michael Jordan goes out with John Bracken golfing right. uh, from episode 23. And so uh, I, got, I guess I got over it. Probably not. I probably was still pissed, but I got over it yep. we caught it we got home and we're doing the show the morning show 
uh, that next week or two weeks later. And she's there. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. I, we didn't we didn't let her go. No, I know. I'm just saying, like she she uh, flew back with uh, you guys. Yeah, and, okay, I mean, yeah, yeah, she yeah. kept on going. Yeah, yeah. And we let it slide and yeah. whatever. And um, a week or two later, we were doing the mid- we were doing the morning show, and I would I would I was living in Queen Anne at the time. Mm-hmm. And after the morning show, I would typically go home and take a nap. And I went home and took a nap uh, a couple of weeks later. And I got up from my nap and I turned the TV on. It was like midday. It was like 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon Mm -hmm. on some random weekday after the morning show, Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks after Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I turn it on and Oprah's on. Mm -hmm. And I was not too proud to watch a little Oprah sure. every once in a while. She was hot if back the, then. If, if yeah. the, not, hot? Not that kind of hot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah I watch. I, if the if the topic or the guest was, I mean, I, and she says, we got a great show today. I am so happy that my old friend Lionel Richie is going to be on. And I'm like, oh my God, Lionel Richie. <laughs> Lionel Richie's yeah. going to be on? Yeah. You're going to start dancing says, on the ceiling. And then she says he's going to perform. And yeah. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to watch a little of this. Well, Lionel Richie comes on. And starts performing the song you just mentioned. No. Dancing okay. on the ceiling. Okay. And he's performing. And if you ever saw a, a musician perform on Oprah, it's a smallish studio. Right. They start kind of walking into the, into the, into the, into the, st- yes, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> I'm watching and he's dancing with CJ Silas. <laughs> What did you do? Uh, I looked. I wiped my eyes. I said, am I looking? And the good thing about it is it's such a small studio that after that shot went off and he went to some other, it was just a matter of time before those people were back on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was dancing on the ceiling (laughs) in a recorded episode (laughs) that was recorded the, the week of the NBA Finals. She was missing because she was she was At in Oprah. the Oprah show. She must have gone to interview the people in line like we had set up, and then somebody with the show said, hey, do you want to come in? Mm. And she was like, CJ from OJ in LA. Yes. She was like, are you kidding? I'm getting a chance to come to see Oprah right now? I'm going in. I'll figure out Mitch later. Yeah. I'm going in. Yeah. Little did she know that Mitch would be taking a nap <laughs> when this show aired, <laughs> and he would be <laughs> popping on. And yeah, and I was sideways. I, I I didn't know what to do. And I I I my composure. I was trying to get my composure, oh, and man. and it just everything's dawning on me. So I went in the next morning, and Bob. I I believe that rock star, but Bob Stelton of mm-hmm. Seven Ten mm-hmm. uh, was my was my um, was our engineer, was our yeah. board operator board op- at the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. I think it was him, and I said to him, listen, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to get this song, Dancing on the Ceiling, ready. Just get it ready. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why? Why would you play Dancing on the right, Ceiling? Right. I said, just get it ready. And when I point to you, no matter what I'm saying or doing at the time, when I give you the point, you just hit it. Mm-hmm. You start playing it. Mm-hmm. And I went on. 
And I said, yeah, you know, and I, I somehow segue to that day in Chicago. We were joking around. What happened again, CJ? And she said, you know, ah, we'd have to bring that up again. We don't have to bring that up. I, I ran into a friend or whatever the excuse yeah, yeah. was. I don't remember exactly what it was. But I got her to start going back down the path yes. again. And that's when the pointer finger came on. And she started, and all she's like, why, why, what's this? And it just, everything just dawned on everyone at the time. That she was gone. What was her face like at that point? Oh, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's the, uh, that's the CJ Silas, Oprah Winfrey, Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling story. And I think when I went home from that show, I decided that the whole thing was worth it. Totally. I think that if if you had given me the option of her going missing and losing her for that show and and the, all of this happening for the for the payoff, the payoff might have been worth the whole CJ Silas mess. That's great. Okay, that's great. There it is. I like it. All right. Good story. Uh, you're on the clock for okay. episode 25. You yep. and the Portland Hotel and the flood and the fire trucks and everybody you are on the clock for episode 25 all right it's closing off on willie griffey oh that's right we oh we just it's it's willie griffey willie griffey willie griffey episode willie griffey is now in the books